With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and... Starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ben Lear is the CEO of Group 9. He spent his 20s co-founding something called Thrillist, which is a local recommendation site for quote-unquote civilized bros. Ben comes from a family of entrepreneurs. His dad co-founded the Huffington Post, and his sister started an animal brand called the Dodo. Earlier this year, the Lairs huddled together and they discussed a crazy-sounding idea that they codenamed Project Family. Ultimately, this became Group 9, which is the merger of four different brands, Thrillist, the Dodo, Video News Network called Now This, and Discovery Science Site Seeker. This process was insanely messy and pretty difficult to pull off. This is not like deal-making for the faint of heart. These companies have different boards with different investors, with different priorities. They have different management teams. They got it done, and Discovery ended up investing in Group 9 at a valuation of nearly $600 million. Lear told us about how he went from a self-described, decently spoiled kid to a digital media mogul and what drives him to be ambitious today, despite the fact that his dad casts a huge shadow because he's so successful. You're listening to Success, How I Did It, and I'm your host and Business Insider's U.S. Editor-in-Chief, Allison Chantel. Thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. You founded Thrillist back in 2006, so that would make you an old-timer yep, in media. You're an old-timer. Remember, we met in 2008, so you are also very old. It's true, but you've been at this for a long time, and you are from a family of founders. Your dad, Ken Lair, co-founded the Huffington Post involved in all sorts of things like BuzzFeed, even Business Insider. Yep. Your oh, sister yeah. is the founder. She did the Dodo. Yep. She's now at Group 9 where you are. So you guys do companies. How did that shape you growing up? Yeah, well, I think that's shaped by my dad. For sort of like the largest portion of my childhood, he was building a corporate communications company called Robinson Lear Montgomery and then went to work for AOL during the AOL Time Warner merger. And then after that, took a little time to sort of figure out what he wanted to do next and started HuffPo. But so for most of my childhood, with like one, two or three year exception, he was always running his own businesses. And so I never even for a second thought about what an actual job would be for myself because I never saw the person who I looked up to having a sort of traditional job. So corporate America was never on your radar. It was always like, I'm going to start something. That's yeah, what I, I mean, look, I admittedly grew up like a decently spoiled kid. And so I didn't think about my future. I was a selfish little kid, like doing my own thing. And I was a perfectly good student or whatever. But I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up. But I was always around media and sort of entrepreneurship. And so that was what always interested me, but not in any particular way until Obviously, you sort of graduate from college and the rubber hits the road and you're like, what the hell am I going to do with my life? And that's when I first went and worked in hospitality, actually. I worked for Andre Balaz straight out of school. 
And you went to Penn. I went to Penn, yep. And then came right home and moved back to New York and worked for Andre for a little while. And I think what I really loved about Andre's business was not the hospitality piece of it, but the brand piece of it. And then we had this idea for Thrillist really on the back of our own personal need, which was living in New York and girls I knew were reading Daily Candy. And I felt like there should be something for people like me. And so a buddy from college, Adam, and I spent nights and weekends going out and eating a lot and drinking too much and checking out New York and fancied ourselves experts on fun. And so that was the sort of impetus for Thrillist. And we started it really pathetically humble beginnings. And the media landscape evolved around us. So a lot to unpack there. The first of which is, you mentioned Daily Candy. Daily Candy, mm-hmm. for people who might not remember, was a big email company. I think it sold for something like it tens sold, of millions yeah, of dollars. Yeah, 25 million bucks to Comcast. Oh, a ton of money. And so you want to create... I mean, that was like the media exit of the decade. Right. This is before it exits, though. You see an opportunity. Yeah, I mean, a consumer opportunity. So what did I know about advertising or the business that Daily Candy was in? All I knew is that Daily Candy was influential with women that I knew. So they would read Daily Candy and they would do the things that Daily Candy told them to do. And it seemed like there was value in that. I didn't know what their business looked like, but I knew that it was clearly growing and they had been out and raising money and Bob Pittman had funded them. And he's now the head of iHeartMedia. Yeah, well, and Bob had sort of famously founded MTV, and he's now the chairman of iHeart. But in between, he built a fund called the Pilot Group, which was a private equity fund that did some good deals and some not as good deals. And Daily Candy was one of the good deals, certainly. When we had this idea for Thrillist, which was like a just de facto copycat of Daily Candy, but with a guy's tone, we... The newsletter for guys. Newsletter for guys in in Manhattan. In Manhattan, right, exactly. And by the way, it was for a specific kind of guy. It was like Ben and Adam, age 22, 23. So bros. Real D-bags. No, (laughs) you know, like, like, yeah, I mean, a little, yeah, bros. Civilized bros. And we ended up going to Bob. We launched Thrillist. That doesn't take a lot of money to, like, start sending an email out to your friends. But we got a little traction, and we were right that there was an opportunity in the market, and we went to Bob's fund and said, hey, we're doing this thing. You guys are in daily candy. Do you want to invest with us? And it's fortunate he did because actually, if you think about New York 11 years ago, there is no startup ecosystem. So like nobody graduated class of 2003 Penn with me and decided to go and launch a tech company or a media company. Everyone went wanted to go to Wall Street. Everyone wanted to go to consulting. Everyone wanted to go to business school or everyone wanted to go to law school. That was the way. So if Bob's fund wasn't there, to give us $250,000 was the seed check. I don't know how what we would have done. And I sort of had a not taking money from my dad thing. Not that he would have given it to me, but we're like, let's go raise money and do this thing and try to build it the right way. And I honestly saw it as just a learning experience. I didn't have a vision for what the future of this would look like. And we did an okay job treating every dollar like it was our last. And over what in today's startup world is an unacceptably long period of time, built a brand. It's just unbelievable how startup world, it takes a decade to make a brand that anyone gives a shit about. Right. And so now raising money in media land, it's a lot easier. But back then, it was really tough to raise money for anyone, let alone a guy who maybe didn't have a vision, who was trying to start a newsletter company. So what was the first iteration of Thrillist? What was that first newsletter you sent, and how did you start getting that initial traction? The first newsletter we sent was about a restaurant that is no longer with us called El Rey del Sol which was on 14th Street. It was a Mexican restaurant that we liked. And on the 4th of May, sent out an email telling people about what they should do on Cinco de Mayo the next day. 
we still read it at our company anniversary party each year because it was just so atrocious. And I mean, it's like a pleasure to read because anything is possible if that was the first piece <laughs> of content we created and we built an actual company out of it. It's so who were the poor recipients of this first 600 people who were like everyone in my contact list. And actually, we were supposed to have launched several weeks prior, but the day we were going to launch, we realized that we had not considered the mechanism for actually sending the email. And so I think literally we like loaded it up in my outbox and then got that kickback note that was like, you've sent to too many recipients. I mean, it was as pathetic as it gets. So we then hired whatever the cheapest email newsletter delivery thing is. And for $29 a month, which was like, how dare they charge so much money for the service? Then we sent out our first one. And I will say that for whatever the quality of the content was, the one thing it had was soul. Regardless of whether it was this super thoughtful, sophisticated, whatever brand, it was a brand. It had a consistency and it had a way of thinking about the world and an attitude which was squeeze as much fun and enjoyment out of every day as you can. And that principle is something that even 11 years later, while the brand has been through a bunch of growth and change, it still comes back to that core proposition around do the things you love better, appreciate the world around you, have fun. And so... When did Bob come into the mix? How many of these letters were you sending before you got money to sustain yourself? I would guess maybe we had been creating content for somewhere between three and six months. And did but you have traction? Some, yeah, we had traction. I think we had week over week growth that was accelerating and we had good engagement. And I remember that first year where we put local businesses on the map legitimately, where we went in and we covered something and it became one of those places where there's a line around the corner. And the line doesn't stop. And we got a reputation for being good at picking winners and presenting it in a light that was just different. So when did you start to shape your vision and realize this could actually be a real big business? When Daily Candy sold was the first time we ever picked our head up. So we built for two or three years, and it was getting bigger and bigger. And we always had Daily Candy's trajectory to compare it against. So I remember it was like, can you get to 35,000 subs in your first year? If you do, you're on Daily Candy trajectory. Then could you get to 150,000 subs in year two? If you do, you're on Daily Candy trajectory. And so we had these things that we drove towards, and then there was the same in revenue. And so we had these early Daily Candy metrics that we tracked against and tracked favorably against for two or three years. Then they sold for this sort of big number, and we worshipped Daily Candy and thought that they were this behemoth. But a little bit of it was, okay, well, great, we're on their trajectory, so... My phone must not be working because no one's calling and offering us $125 million for the business. I, I don't know what's going on. And and how many cities are you in at this point? I don't know, eight or 10 or 15 or six. But like it felt substantive enough. The audience was great quality, but it was an email newsletter. You know, think about the reach that brands have today. Business Insider has interacted with more people since we've been sitting here than Thrillist did that year. It was hard to say, well, where does this thing go? And we got this bug in our head that there was an opportunity to take this hyper-engaged consumer and find ways to monetize them outside of advertising. And we said, what else can we do with them? And just about this time, I started investing. And so And what year is this? 2009. And yeah. so you are now in a bunch of markets. You've got a good subscriber base. Advertisers are interested. They're working with you. But yep. one of the rules a lot of media companies try to follow is don't just have one revenue stream. Yep. One thing that you guys figured out and that you tried 
was a lot of people were pairing commerce and content. That's that turning point for us. Right. So you found this company, Jack Threads, yep. and they were a clothing company, and you bought them. And this is because I was investing. Is it worth giving that backstory, the sure. LHV backstory? For you? So my dad is running HuffPo, or he's the chairman of HuffPo, and I'm building Thrillist, and actually this comes back to BI, Henry Blodgett. My dad's friend calls him and says, I'm starting this thing, and I'm raising a little bit of money. And so my dad goes, hey, my friend Henry's starting this thing. What do you think? You know, he sort of, like, asks my opinion, but, like, certainly not asking me for any money because I don't have any. And we're like, okay, sure. So we give Henry a little bit of money. And then we make eight or ten investments in a year or so, and then, like, they start to do well. Just like BI, they're all starting to gain a little momentum. One of them is... uh, BuzzFeed? BuzzFeed. Smart, yes. One of them is BuzzFeed. Uh, <laughs> I know and, your portfolio better right? than you do. Yep. And my dad one day comes to me and goes, hey, you know what? I'm an old dude. I've been around a little bit. It's really interesting what's happening right now. Your friends want to go and do tech startups suddenly. I feel like something is happening here, and we should try to get involved. And I said, yeah, I appreciate that point. I have a job. You have a job. I don't even know what you're talking about. And he said, we should raise a fund and do some investing. And I said, that's actually not a terrible idea. The real impetus for it was he read the funding story about Foursquare. And he's like, I wish we had invested in that. And like, I know those dudes. Like, we could have invested in that. And that was when he said, you know all the kids who are starting companies, and I bet I could raise a little bit of money for us from my friends. Let's put these things together and see if we can start a little fund. And so we raised $8.5 million fund. And and this was Lair Ventures. Yes. And so we started investing. And like, that was an amazing vintage of New York companies. The first generation of great New York tech companies. And then when my dad sold HuffPo, he said, well, what am I going to do now? And this LV thing is really working. And we said, let's make this a little more serious. And so then we went and raised another fund and, and since have raised six funds, each one just about doubling in size from the one before. And you know we've made over 300 investments in early stage technology companies and a lot of them are direct-to-consumer commerce. And so I got obsessed with direct-to-consumer commerce. And then when I was running Thrillist, I said, well, how do we take these direct-to-consumer commerce companies that we're investing in and some of that philosophy and marry that with what we're building at Thrillist? Jack Threads was a company who was an advertiser at Thrillist and a successful advertiser. They spent money with us, and people signed up and spent money with them. And we said, right time, right place, right value. And we decided to buy Jack Threads six years ago at Thrillist to get into content and commerce. So you buy this company and it does boost your revenue a bunch, but then eventually you end up spinning it out. Yep. So what happened there? We brought it in and we started growing two businesses at once, a media business and a commerce business. And as is sometimes the case, the new thing that comes in is the sort of shiny object. And so we start putting a lot of focus into integrating it in, into investing it and growing it. And Jack Threads explodes and starts growing super quickly. And you sort of turn back and look at your media business a year later and go, ah, that hasn't grown because we haven't put any time into it and we haven't invested money into it. And we sort of took for granted that it was going to continue to grow. You then go back and go, okay, we got to like get this media business back in track. And then you sort of turn back and look at your retail business six months later and go, that's nah, it's not growing as fast as it was. And so then we get to this point and go, okay, guys, we need to divide and conquer and we need to start growing our management team. We need to put more resources against this. And so we went out and raised a Series A from Oak, from Fred Harmon at Oak. And that was to fund growth in both businesses. And Fred came in. And he's been an investor in a lot of media companies, Bleacher Report, a bunch. Bleacher, HuffPo, 
now this, Britain Co., Fred gets it. And we built a great relationship with Fred. A lot of investors loved the idea, but it was like harder to raise money than it should have been. We're like, eh, look, it is what it is. Let's just put our head down and grow these two businesses. And a few things happened. One is each of them started changing. And so Thrillist started becoming more gender neutral as the audience got bigger. And Jack Threads got into the business of making its own stuff. And both businesses, as we were investing, started requiring more capital. And they need different kinds of capital. And they need different kinds of talent. And so then we built sort of separate management teams. And the businesses, which at one point were in the same boat or in boats sitting beside each other going in the same direction, started diverging. And so, you know, whatever it was, two and a half years ago, I think, when we ended up closing the financing, Axel Springer came in and invested. And as part of their investment, they basically said, look, we love your media business. We want to grow your media business. As you would know, they are fans of the media business, Mm -hmm. now the owners of BI. Exactly. Yes. And actually, this was within the same month that they bought BI. This is about two years ago. About two years ago. Okay. That's when we closed. I think we sort of looked at Thrills and said, a lot has happened in the media business and the rise of social and the opportunity that we saw around the corner with video, which is now the very sort of foundation of what Group 9 is all about. We said there's this bigger, more exciting thing happening, and we don't want to be half in and half out, and we want to go and grow media. And we said, let's spin Jack Threads and put it in a separate thing. It'll become an LHV investment, and we'll bring in new money and a new CEO, and it'll have its own course, and like it will be a separate thing from us. And so we did that and put our head down on Thrillist and just focused and grew like a weed. And, you know, it was like that reminder of we're good at this business if we pay attention and if we don't lose sight of, like, the fundamentals of what we're trying to build. And so we grew Thrillist really nicely and then all the while had this idea that there was changes happening in media that were big and exciting. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the Metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Someone look at the big, exciting changes in media and actually be a little bit scared because it means a lot more investment, a whole change in business model to some extent as different media is 
keep forming. So someone would look at that and be like, okay, this is time to get out. I've built a great thing. I've built a great brand. I've done this for, you know, eight years or whatever it had been at that point. I'm done. Did you think that? Like, I know that there had been rumors of acquisition talk along the years at Thrillist. What was the closest you ever came? The closest we ever came was when we did the spin of Jack Threads uh, because that was emotionally hard. That was physically hard. You build a team, you build a culture. It's all your people, and we're like, this is going to be hard. And it was. And that was a moment where when we were splitting the two things, we got really close to selling it. And we had multiple people who I think would have bought it and who we were having real conversations with. Like who? Like Axel. We spent a bunch of time with them. It was in the press that, like, you know, we spent a bunch of time with Viacom. And by the way, I don't think that selling is in any way, shape, or form giving up or copping out or throwing in the towel at all. No. I just thought that it wasn't really the right time for us. And this, again, comes back to my dad. At that time, he said something to me that was really important, that was a big driving factor, where he said, look at what's happening in media. Look at the changes that are going on. This feels like the cable TV business to me in the 80s, where you have these strong brands that people care about with big growing audiences on the new distribution platforms on social. And it's like the Wild West and the money's not all there yet, but the audiences are huge. And boy, history is repeating itself. He said, I see something happening. I remember being almost your exact age in 1982 and seeing consolidation start to come to cable. And I didn't have a front row seat. You have your buy-in. You have a chip to play a real role here in Thrillist. You own one of the 20 or 30 or 40 brands that matter in digital. And if I were in your shoes, I would think about taking what you have and doubling down. So you don't build a brand in the wind to get bought, but you build the next holding company. And we thought about that idea, and it sounded really compelling. I literally just looked at everything happening in digital media, and I said, if I started Thrills again today, how would I build it? What would it look like? You build totally around your consumer. You unapologetically go to where they are. You unapologetically create in the format that is going to get the most distribution go to where the people are and build giant brands that tons of people love. And like money always does follow these things. So you now run Group 9, which ended up kind of consolidating all these things into one. The Dodo, All these very different companies. And Thrillist. um, That were all media. How did that discussion happen? How did you decide, okay, we're going to take now this, the Dodo, have them all agree to join? Yeah. And then come up with the structure where you're suddenly king? Um, Well, I... Rude. Um, (laughs) So the structure was, I mean, this is not like deal-making for the faint of heart. I definitively remember this. It was a year ago. It was during the summer because I remember where I was running. I was running outside, and I was having a call with Fred, and I was telling him about this idea. And he said, basically, don't quit your day job. Like, good luck putting these things together. It's a really great idea, but these companies have different boards with different investors, with different priorities. They have different management teams. There was a lot of crossover investor. So Axel was in Thrillist and Axel was in Now This. Graycroft may have been in two out of three. LHV was in all three. Fred Harmon, I believe, was in all three of them. The only outside investor of scale 
at any of the companies other than Axel and Fred and Lehrer was Discovery, who was a big investor at the Dodo. It took a lot of spending time with the management teams of the other businesses to all sort of have a meeting of the mind on how this would look and what the structure would be. And we were right about a bunch and wrong about a bunch. And we've continued to learn as we put the businesses together. The philosophy was if we're going to build the biggest digital holding company, for a bunch of reasons, it would make sense to be partnered with one of the biggest traditional holding companies. And so because Discovery had had a very positive experience with the Dodo and because we thought that it just aligned with us for a bunch of reasons, they were one of a very small handful of folks that we sort of teased this idea to, which we called Project Family was our secret name. And Discovery was decisive and aggressive and ambitious and self-aware. And they said, this is hard and we're doing this here. Let's be all in with you guys while we make a big investment. Let's also contribute our digital footprint. And we're not going to try to compete with you. You guys will build digital. And we're going to do what we do great. And we'll find ways to partner in a thousand different ways. But Seeker will be part of the Group 9 family. And so Seeker's our fourth brand. So you're creating content for platforms like Facebook and Instagram and Snapchat and you're pumping it out to them and you're letting them be the distribution. Do you guys even need websites? Are you just doing distributed? We have websites. I think a website is there because of search and because if you're building brands that answer questions that people might have, you should be there for those people. I think you build them for hyper fan bases. We'll have tens and tens of millions of uniques across our properties because we have brands that matter. Those are people coming to your websites to check it out. Yeah, and we'll have big audiences there that is an output of having brands that matter. That's not the business. So you're the head now of four different brands. Well, each brand has its own leads. So I'm not the head of the brands. I'm the head of the holding company that owns the brands. But the brands operate totally independently from an editorial perspective. Lots of shared learning, shared insights, shared technology, shared go-to-market from an advertising perspective. Like We're consolidating at the sort of Group 9 level as much as we can to get best practices and learnings and efficiency, but the brands themselves are wholly independent editorial operations with their own mission, their own soul, their own direction. And you said that Discover went all in. They invested about $100 million into this new digital yeah. entity holding company, and I think you were valued at about 580 million through this deal. I think we want to build the best content brands and the best IP creation brands for the next generation of consumers. And part of the philosophy of creating great content is creating content with the user at the center, meaning we're going to make it for where people are, not for where we can capture them. Right, where it's convenient for them. Yep. One thing that it seems like you guys and a lot of other folks are really doubling down, and this probably comes into play when you talk about disrupting cable and cable coming together with print and all that, is video. Video is taking over. Social video is everywhere. Are you all video content now? Is that where you're heading? Is, We're not is all text video content. Text happening? is not dead. Text is not dead. We want to first think how a story is told in sight, sound, and motion. But a lot of stories, that's not the best way to consume. That's not the best way to distribute. And so the idea is we're building brands, brands that stand for something. They're going to create a wide array of content. Most of it probably is going to be video. But that is not to say at all that like we don't believe in 
non-video content and Rolls is a perfect example. We're winning James Beard Awards for our journalism and our feature writing and telling really interesting and important stories and huge numbers of people are relying on us to come and read about local food and drink and that's part of being a brand that does everything that your audience could want you to do. But we're a video company. You know, Facebook is not a social network. Facebook is a mobile video distribution platform. All of these platforms are trying to build the mobile version of television. And there's a really good reason for it because there's upwards of $70 billion in the U.S. TV market that they would all like to have. And so we're building on the backs of the pipes. And the pipes want video because people want video and because the business is in video. And so we're building the future of TV networks, and that's video. So a couple of personal questions to wrap this all up. Don't worry, not oh too personal. My God. <laughs> um, but we've talked a lot about where you came from and your dad and how he's been a big influence on yeah. your life. And I would say one of the biggest criticisms that people who are successful, who have successful parents get is success breeds success. And you are successful because you came from privilege. So I don't think that you would have stuck it out and gone through all this pain of building a 10-year-plus media company if that were the only thing driving you. But like, how do you respond to that? When people yeah. are, have that criticism, what do you say? What I would say is, like, yeah, like, I totally get that. And who am I kidding? I just told you the story of my career, and arguably the two most important decisions I've made were in some way, shape, or form taking my father's advice. So I'm hardly shying away from the, the idea that my dad has been incredibly helpful to me. His success is not what has been helpful for me. He, like, actually helps me. He gives me the best advice ever. So what can I say? I mean, yeah, like, he's but been can helpful. can you be successful without it? Like, not you personally, but in general. Can, well, of course you can be successful without Can you build a big it. company? Of course you can, and people do that all the time. I've had the benefit of having him help me, and it's been helpful, and I believe I'm more successful because of the help I've gotten from him. So, like, I'm not going to shy away from it and be like, I would do it all without my dad. My dad has not given me money for my companies, but, like, he's been helpful. And by the way, where's the line between nepotism and the apple doesn't fall far from the tree? I think that there are people who know my dad, who think my dad's smart, who maybe give me an extra look because they're like, hey, maybe this guy comes from okay genes. And, like, my sister's been pretty successful. Like, clearly something okay is going on. Like, we're not morons. <laughs> and so I will lean right into, like, my dad has helped my career, and I appreciate it, <laughs> and I'm, I'm happy to acknowledge it. Well, you should never apologize from where you come from, and I think yeah. it's a huge testament to you that you have been so ambitious and built such a great career for that yourself. That is very sweet of you. Regardless. Where does that ambition come from? Like, you could have just sat back and been like, a sloppy college kid forever, but you're not that person. And you built this huge media company that you want to become even bigger. So you're working your butt off. What drives you and how did you get that ambition? One, insecurity. The great motivator. I uh, think when you have successful parents too, you want to prove that you can do it yourself. You know what's funny? I agree with that. At the same time, I grew up in Manhattan and went to Dalton and Many of my friends had super successful whatever parents, and, like, it didn't turn out to be the great motivator for all of them. For me, it's fear of failure, first and foremost, is something that's a huge driver. I wish that wasn't the case, but it is. And then a lot of it is just the meaning of life, sort of. What is your life, and, like, how do you make the most of it? And there are so many times where this is hard, and I'm like, oh, man, I could live an easier life, but it's not actually appealing 
why get out of bed in the morning? You got to do stuff and make stuff. And particularly, I think Group 9 is really mission-driven. There has been nothing that has been a greater pleasure for me than with this political environment and this disgusting president to have now this news be part of our portfolio and to see the change that they're making and the people that they're giving voices to. That's amazing. And I'm really proud of the work that they're doing and feel lucky to be a part of it. And that's an example of that's being alive. Great. Well, thank you so much, Ben. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Of course. Oldest friend. Thanks for listening to Success How I Did It. For more episodes, subscribe on Acast or iTunes and check out episodes we've done with Steve Ballmer, Cheryl Sandberg, LeBron James, and more.